Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Laura Bourne, a PhD student from UCL. Laura is interested in feeding and eating disorders, autism and ARFID, looking at how parents can feel, the current treatment approaches and so many other topics within her PhD. Hello, Laura. Hello, thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm just looking at your window and it looks so dark. It's really dark, yeah. <laughs> and it's what, it's really 20 past four? I know, yeah. <laughs> it is, it looks really wet as well. But, <laughs> yeah. but that is the winter for you. Um. Anyway, yeah. I'm so excited to speak to you this is the first time that we've spoken about ARFID on the podcast um and I just think you know my main aim was to talk about all different types of eating disorders so it's I'm really excited to have a chat with you um I guess kind of the first question to start us off with what is ARFID? Yeah of course so ARFID is an eating disorder um which was introduced relatively recently in 2013 um, and is characterised by a significant restriction in the type or amount of food. Mm-hmm. So it leads to lots of different things, um, including weight loss or what's called faltering growth in children. So a kind of failure to achieve appropriate weight gain or height, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, but also things like significant nutritional deficiencies, um, a dependence on supplements or tube feeding, um, and then also something... Um, called a marked interference with psychosocial functioning. So that basically refers to an impact on the way that somebody lives their life. So um, if it affects their functioning at school or um, at work or at home, that sort of thing. Um, So I suppose importantly, the important thing about ARFID is that it's not related to any body weight or shape concerns. Mm -hmm. So if somebody did express concerns about their weight, um, and by that I mean a kind of um, a desire to lose weight so if the food restriction is driven by a desire to lose weight or maintain a very low weight um, then they may be better suited to a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa or something along those lines um, so someone with ARFID doesn't necessarily present with low weight um, but it is one of the possible consequences of eating a severely restricted diet um, and in fact it's fairly common for someone with ARFID um, who is of a low weight to express a desire to actually gain weight. So that's what you tend okay. to see in ARFID. Um, so there are lots of reasons why somebody could present with ARFID. We know already that it's not wanting, it's not to do with wanting to lose weight or maintain a low weight. Um, currently, there are three kind of example presentations given in the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria. Um, and they're an aversion to um, food based on the sensory characteristics of it. So perhaps um, things like texture, color, smell, appearance. Uh, The second one is a fear or phobia-based avoidance of food, which could be as a result of say a choking or vomiting incident, Um, or perhaps not. It could just be uh, a fear which sort of seemingly comes out of nowhere. And then finally, a lack of interest in food or eating. Um, But as I say, they're just, examples um, of things that may be driving the avoidance restriction. There are lots of other reasons and they're not mutually exclusive either. So um, people often present with more than one. Um, but that's it really, it's, it's a bit of a long one, but um, yeah, there are a few a few steps to it, but that's what ARFID is. So what would you say, you know, you spoke a lot about kind of the body and the not, like there's not a desire to lose weight or like maintain a load of weight. Is that sort of, the main thing that distinguishes it from let's say anorexia or you think there are other things that also distinguish it yeah I'd say that's probably the most kind of noticeable um but the drive yeah drivers are different so things like um sensory aversions and a fear or phobia based you might see that in anorexia nervosa but if somebody's not expressing 
um, any kind of desire to lose weight or maintain a low weight, that's where you would sort of distinguish between that and ARFID. So I'd say that's the kind of main one. Um, but quite often what happens or, you know, what I've heard of is that in the past people have been diagnosed with anorexia and they've said, actually, I don't want to be, I don't want to lose weight. I don't want to be this low. I don't want my weight to be this low. And um, it's kind of been dismissed a little bit. So almost a little bit like, okay, you, you do, you know, you, you do want to be a low weight. Um, and then they've, oh. the anorexia is stuck as a result, but really they probably would have been better suited to a diagnosis of ARFID. So I think as ARFID is becoming slightly more well-known, um, clinicians are starting to recognise that people do have this eating disorder mm. where they significantly restrict either what they're eating or the amount that they're eating. And actually they don't want to be um, very thin or, you know, to lose lots of weight. Yeah, I guess a question there would be, you know, if, if somebody is listening, maybe it's a GP or if it's a parent, are there certain signs or symptoms for parents maybe to look out for or GPs kind of questions to ask to sort of distinguish between the different eating disorders um yeah I suppose with ARFID it's what we've sort of discussed what we've touched on so far so sudden or chronic weight loss um or persistent low weight I suppose you know that you, you might see that in other, other eating disorders as well um and for children this kind of persistent failure to meet expected points on a growth chart Mm -hmm. So that might be one um, and they sort of tie in with all of the diagnostic criteria. So um, the physical effects of nutritional deficiency could be um, assigned. So things like constipation or fatigue um, hair loss, uh, joint pain, bleeding gums, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, for parents or carers uh, or for doctors or clinicians assessing younger children, um, it could be that children are starting to express concerns about swallowing or fears of swallowing or vomiting, or that they've refused foods, certain foods based on their appearance or the texture or the brand, that's quite a big one. Um, or that they've just never been particularly interested in meal times. Um, but of course, lots of children refuse chicken nuggets that aren't the ones that they're used to um, or don't enjoy sitting down for a meal, that's really common. Um, but the key is that the eating has a significant impact on um, the child physically or emotionally or socially even. Um, so, yeah, I suppose with ARFID, what you're looking for is a significant restriction in um, the volume or variety of food, which has a considerable impact on somebody's life, which mm. isn't driven by um, the desire to lose weight or stay at a very low weight. Yeah, amazing. I think you've, you've given such a nice, like specific um, overview there, which was fantastic. And something I, I guess I wanted to ask from what you said, is it, I guess, only something that kind of starts in childhood or could it start in adulthood as well? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. It, it can it can definitely start in adulthood. Um, I think that typically we sort of see it as a childhood disorder um, or sort of picky eating. We think of uh, associate we associate that with children um but adults can develop ARFID so it could be that they experience some kind of traumatic incident relating to food which triggers ARFID um it could be that they've always been not very interested in food but as they've got older and to grown into an adolescent or into an adult that the consequences of this restricted diet starts to take its toll and then they would receive a diagnosis of ARFID um, but I suppose part of the reason that that that's there that that sort of myth exists um, about it being a childhood disorder is because you tend to notice these things quite early on if the child's not really eating very much and they're not growing properly and and they've got all sorts of nutritional deficiencies then it's something you spot really early on but no it can absolutely um emerge in adulthood adulthood or it can persist into adulthood so it's not just for children yeah okay brilliant and I think that's such an important kind of thing to mention because I guess you know sometimes we do hear these kind of stigmas or whatever so often and especially for ARFID which I think is something that maybe isn't spoken about a lot I think it's super important to kind of make sure people know that it can occur at all ages um and you know I 
on that note I kind of had a few stigmas that I wanted to talk to you about because I, I mean I think the biggest one you've kind of mentioned there about ARFID and it just kind of being picky eating um mm. which I guess I mean do you want to delve a bit deeper into why that's absolute rubbish <laughs> yeah I mean, this is a really important one actually because we know that picky eating is a really common phase of sort of early childhood development and lots of children are picky and it tends to sort of resolve itself with little or no need for any kind of intervention um, or professional help so if you're a parent or carer and you talk to others and they say all kids are picky eaters it's normal then that is sort of true you know lots of children are picky as we said earlier you know children have particular brands that they like or they only like um mcdonald's chicken nuggets or walker's crisps um but that's picky um arfid is really different arfid's an eating disorder and i think that parents and carers of children with arfid know that it's more than just fussiness mm. and i think you know from my experience from speaking to parents um they know quite quickly that it's not just fussiness so it's not just uh, you know the child only eats a certain a quite a limited repertoire it's that the child hardly eats anything they've got kind of three accepted foods and that's it and it's a real concern um, it's completely different from fussiness or picky eating um, yeah and it, it's a bit of a misconception actually yeah I can imagine as well you know as a parent if you're going to get support for your child because you know they're only eating maybe one type of food or whatever to then just be met with oh they're just a picky eater I can imagine would be kind of infuriating you're like my child's literally not eating and you're not kind of understanding what's going on Mm, yeah I can imagine that it's hugely frustrating I've heard stories of people that have gone to their GP um and the GP has just sort of said or, or not just the GP but you know even spoken to friends or family and one thing that I hear quite a lot is people say um if you leave them for long enough they'll eat so if, if they're hungry enough they'll eat and actually that's not true for our fit the child just won't eat and it could be that they have a complete lack of interest um lack of appetite a lack of interest in food completely um or it could be that they just really can't stand lots of different foods so if you sit them at the table with a plate of unaccepted foods they just won't eat it they won't they'll go to bed hungry they'll get up the next day they won't eat again um, it, it's not something that you can just sort of leave and ignore and hope that it will resolve itself but yeah it certainly sounds like something that's really frustrating and something that parents I think just recently um as healthcare professionals and GPs and um, just generally I suppose parents and carers and and anybody really is starting to get to know about ARFID uh, people are starting to take it slightly more seriously but certainly you know five ten years ago it would have just been brushed off and mm. the parent would have gone on to struggle for years and years and years possibly you know the child would have grown up to be an adult with ARFID and, and just struggled for their for their entire life so yeah it's it's quite a serious situation yeah absolutely and you kind of um I mean one of the others I had a look online and one of the other stigmas that um was coming up was kind of about poor parenting and again like you know it's kind of what what I said before about how frustrating and kind of upsetting that must be if you've gone to find support for your child because they'll only eat one certain thing and you know you are feeding them that one sort of thing because in you know as any parent would if your child's only going to eat one certain food or your loved one or whatever you're going to give them that one certain food so that they're eating so then to be met again with oh it's just poor parenting or you know you've not given them a diverse diet that must again be I can imagine that'd be horrific yeah and again this is another one that I've sort of heard about quite a lot and occasionally from parents themselves um who sort of blame themselves or or other family members if they've got you know um, another family member and a nan or a granddad or a, um, an au pair or somebody who cares for their child um, and they tend to sort of attribute blame for causing an issue around food um, as a result of sort of bribery or coercion at mealtimes mm. or paying too much attention or too little attention to the problem um, and parents often worry that their anxiety around mealtime worsens the problem because of course 
quite naturally, I suppose, if your child finds eating a real challenge, then it becomes a huge source of anxiety mm. for everyone involved. Um, but because ARFID is an eating disorder, there's a fundamental issue at play which needs addressing. So it could be that the child has a genuine fear that certain foods will cause them harm. Um, it could be something like a dysregulation of appetite hormones, sort of relating to the child's hunger and satiety cues. So ARFID's really complex um, and there's so much more that we need to understand. So yeah, parenting practices might improve the problem, which is where sort of treatments come in, but they certainly don't cause ARFID um, mm. and yeah, poor parenting isn't, isn't a cause of ARFID at all. Yeah, it almost feels as though, I mean, I think with, with all eating disorders, we've got kind of a, a long, long way to go in terms of finding out more information, but it almost feels from what you're saying as though ARFID is kind of like one step behind in terms of the research. And I think, you know, you speak to a lot of, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people now who are kind of in the realms of eating disorders. And we understand that there's lots of different factors that cause, you know, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, but it almost sounds as though ARFID is a little bit behind in that we're still sort of, you know, blaming maybe development or parents or whatever, and not, not thinking about, you know, all the different other things that could potentially lead to like, you know, the uncomfortable relationship with food. Um, I guess my question is, you know, I want to speak about your research because obviously you're doing a PhD and kind of, you know, I know when we spoke, you said you've got a lot of things that you want to find out, which is fantastic. But are there some like core things that you're looking to find out to kind of reduce, I guess, the stigmas and stuff associated with ARFID? Yeah, I suppose when I started the PhD, I was really interested in understanding the presentation of ARFID. So um, you know, the kind of drivers and what it looks like. Um, and that's still really relevant to me. But as I've done more research, I've realised how little we know about almost every aspect of it. Um, you know, treatment's a really big one. I think there's there's lots of research going into treatment, but actually we don't completely understand everything that comes before treatment yet. So it's really important that we understand what, what it looks like. Um, but also, I think that I'm really interested now in sort of spreading the word a little bit which I know I can't necessarily do through a PhD um but I'm doing a study at the moment where I'm speaking to parents and carers of children and adolescents with ARFID and a kind of a, a really central theme that's popping up is that people struggled so much to get access to care and access to support um, and I think it's really important that not only do we obviously improve access to support, but we also just get people um, familiar with the term and understanding what ARFID is. And importantly, as we spoke about earlier, that it's not pickiness. It's not just picky eating, because I quite often tell people about my PhD and they say to me, I've got a friend or, you know, my friend's son or, or whoever they're really picky and they eat this this and this and they've probably got ARFID and I'm always quite quick to sort of say well they may do I'm not a clinician and I'm not able to diagnose them but ARFID is an eating disorder and it's serious and um you know we need to understand a little bit more about what it really is mm -hmm. before we start talking about it and um, so yeah, I suppose research-wise, I'm interested in all aspects of understanding ARFID. At this stage, it's so early on in terms of the research process. So because it was introduced in 2013, um, it's still a, a really new thing. Mm. Um, so anything we learn about it is valuable, makes a valuable contribution to the literature. Um, but for me, I feel really passionate about just sort of spreading the word and... and um, trying to improve that access to support for, for anybody from parents and carers to adolescents and adults with ARFID. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the, the treatment process is, and the support process is so important. And I'm really glad that you're, you know, really focusing um, on parents and carers and family members, because I think often they are forgotten about, but mm -hmm. especially I would assume in ARFID kind of treatment, they'd be a really fundamental 
kind of element of that in terms of you know helping people increase the kind of variety of food that they're eating and kind of that comfortableness um and I know you said kind of um you know you're still trying to work out what offered is in order to work out the treatment but what is the kind of treatment currently that is offered when people present with offered so um so at this time there aren't any sort of evidence-based psychological okay. treatments for offered that suit all presentations so there right. are lots of there are lots of different evidence-based treatments yeah but they don't suit all presentations but I suppose that kind of makes sense really because Mm. AFID's what we call a heterogeneous condition so there are lots of different reasons why someone um, would receive a diagnosis of AFID so it kind of makes sense there's not a one-size-fits-all approach um so if you think about it say if you were supporting someone with a fear of eating that would be very different to helping somebody who has little interest in food. Mm. Um, And then there's lots of other complications. So um, like lots of other conditions, ARFID doesn't have just one simple driver. And you could say the same about anorexia nervosa. It's not as simple as just saying, you know, why has this happened? Let's just tackle that. Um, It's kind of intricate web of lots of different things which need a tailored approach to intervention. Um, and then add to that the fact that the consequences of ARFID can be physical, psychological, emotional, um, social even, um, and the fact that ARFID can present alongside um, ASD, ADHD, anxiety disorders, and various other comorbidities, which need to be taken into consideration. Um, so there's kind of a definite need for multidisciplinary in- input. So, so that's kind of a long way of saying that treating ARFID is is quite a challenge basically Mm. and in terms of treatments being trialed currently there's some evidence for the efficacy of pharmacological intervention and so certain medications have been found to help but particularly with ARFID symptoms relating to anxiety Um, so that's proved quite useful CBT also seems promising so Jennifer Thomas and Cameron Eddy and their colleagues in the US have developed CBTAR, um, mm. which is CBT specifically for ARFID. Um, and they've tested that in a few different populations and it seems to be particularly effective. So that's looking good. Um, but yeah, the point is that you kind of need to look at the whole picture. So it could be that you, um, it could involve exposure therapy to remove the fear attached to certain foods, um, for example, or family-based therapy for younger children, Mm. which is kind of, um, which is thought to help parents and carers support recovery at home. Um, And things like nutritional support, of course, which is a really critical part of recovery because that's that's also included in treatment. In fact, it's arguably the most important initially to ensure that someone is physically well or at least kind of recovering, I suppose, before we tackle the psychological drivers. So treatment can involve any number of healthcare professionals, dietitians, pediatricians, nurses, psychologists, play therapists. And um, yeah, the list goes on really. Um, but yeah, in the UK, at least, there's a kind of real lack of services for people with ARFID or suspected ARFID despite it being increasingly common disorder mm. or increasingly diagnosed because we assume people have always had it and yeah. just that they haven't had it recognized. Um, there is currently um, a trial, a national pilot. So I think it started at the Maudsley in South London um, and it's run by Dr. Rachel Brightmore who um, does a lot of work for children and young people with eating disorders. And it's kind of a dedicated service and they've got sites across England um, and they provide care according to sort of individual needs. And I think that's a really fantastic step towards helping those living with ARFID. Um, and these are the parents and carers that I've been speaking to. And I think it's a really valuable service. So certainly in terms of kind of taking a step in the right direction for ARFID treatment, that's really promising. Um, but yeah, everything's sort of in in the relative initial stages of trying to figure out how to help somebody but ultimately it's about multidisciplinary input um, and trying to kind of get to the bottom of of why somebody's having trouble with their eating 
um, and trying to tackle as many of the drivers as possible. Mm. Um, but yeah, hopefully we can see more recognition of the condition in the future and then more support offered. Yeah. Because once people get access to care, I think that they see improvements, but it's getting that access because it's underfunded or, um, you know, like everything else um, and really difficult to have it recognised. Mm. Yeah, I'm really like, I'm so happy what you've said about kind of the direction that the treatment seems to be going in, because I think we are sort of at a stage now where people are treated for their diagnosis, not for the individual. Um, and so the fact that you said like, you know, there could be so many different arrays because you're looking at the driving factors for it rather than just saying, okay, so they've got offered, so we'll give them this. It's more, mm -hmm. they're presenting with this, therefore we'll give them this sort of treatment, which I think, you know, that's surely going to lead to kind of better outcomes down the line and being able to have loads of different things to offer because not everything works for one person you know I think there's a lot mm -hmm. of kind of CBT offered on the NHS and for some people CBT works amazingly but for others it might not work um and then I think people are kind of left like okay well what am I meant to do now because that didn't work but there's not really anything else that I can do um if if someone does have offered you know right now and they went to the doctor would there be treatment available for them or is that still under process? As far as I'm aware, I, I, I don't know, to be honest, what a GP would say or any kind of first point of contact in terms of healthcare professionals. I know with this ARFID pilot that there are several sites across England. So I think it's it's a national pilot. Um, but I think like anything, it's difficult to, to get access to that care. But because GPs and healthcare professionals are starting to recognise ARFID, the NHS is starting to recognise ARFID and starting to fund treatment. I think it's becoming an easier um, thing to get care for, but I can't say for sure what anybody would say in any kind of part of the country, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes the first thing is just recognising it. I've spoken to parents who went for years sort of pulling their hair out and saying you know my child is really fussy and they don't eat anything and they're losing weight and they've got all these kind of nutritional deficiencies that I'm really worried about them and they get dismissed at the doctors or whatever and then they just happen to sort of come across um, a lecture or a book or somebody talking about ARFID and it's this sort of light bulb moment that <laughs> hang on a minute that's exactly what it is or you know I talk about children a lot but as I say it occurs in adults as well adults that have a severely limited diet and suddenly they recognize they've got ARFID or they could potentially have ARFID um, and even that I think going to the doctor and saying you know take me seriously I'm not just fussy this is um, a really serious thing I think that that may then just just sort of force somebody to take you a little bit more seriously um, but no, unfortunately, I'm not entirely sure what access to care is like in terms of just going to your GP, yeah. but it's worth going to the GP, yeah. you know, maybe going back if you need to. Um, and yeah, the Maudsley, as I say, do a fantastic job of, of treating ARFID specifically. So if there's any way to get in touch with the Maudsley, then that might be something that's worth doing as well. Yeah. I guess um, the best thing to do in the situation is maybe to, if you do think it's offered, have a look online and then, you know, take some evidence or something with you to the doctor. I know that Beat do like a list of kind of symptoms to present to your doctor. I don't know whether they have an ARFID specific one, but at least, you know, you could make your own and say, I'm presenting with all these symptoms, like, you know, where can I go for help? Because you know, like you said at the start, it, it's affecting my life and kind of, you know, you deserve help for that. Um, mm. Another thing that I kind of wanted to pick up on was you mentioned sort of the link between ARFID and then ASD, ADHD and anxiety disorders. And I guess I wondered if you could expand a little bit more on that, because I think maybe that's another don't know whether it's a stigma um but I think a lot of the time when people think ARFID because of their relationship with food I think often people think that ARFID 
and autism are always together I don't know whether the research what the research suggests there yeah and that's that's a really good point actually um so I'm sort of always reluctant a little bit to talk about the link between ARFID and autism because there is a link but it's kind of a little bit more complicated I suppose than it seems so we know that autistic individuals experience sort of sensory sensitivities um which can but doesn't always but can result in a limited food repertoire um so you know of accepted foods from my personal experience which is like as I say largely limited to children with ARFID ASD is often a comorbid diagnosis so it does pop up quite a lot um and it can be related to all sorts of things so obviously as we said the sensory sensitivities so um you know you quite often see an aversion to texture that's quite a big one um and brands having this really specific knowledge of of what a particular brand tastes like or looks like and um even parents that have said my son for example accepted these fish fingers and then the company changed the packaging and now he won't accept them anymore because they look different so um i think that kind of real attention to detail um can cause a bit of an issue um yeah so there's there's lots of different things things like over arousal i suppose um giving little attention to things that aren't of particular interest which can be you know something that we see in autistic people who have particular interests in things but perhaps food isn't one of them um so they're just not interested they just don't have a particular appetite around it um anxious avoidance and as we said sort of, sort of touched on earlier this sort of preference for sameness or routine mm. so um you know my child will go to a particular restaurant but we have to sit at the same table and they have to sit in a particular seat um and we have to use the same cutlery and the same crockery um so there is a definite link i from 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 my experience there's a link and the research does show that um people with autism so autistic people are at a slightly increased risk of something like ARFID probably for the reasons that we've mentioned um but I suppose just because someone's autistic it doesn't mean they'll have ARFID mm. or indeed have any difficulty with food or eating it, it could just be that they're completely normal in terms of food or eating and um, but there is there is an increased risk there we know from the research, but it's very limited, <laughs> uh, you know, from very limited research, we know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I suppose, I don't know, my initial, when you just said about the limited research there, my thought was maybe if somebody's coming to the doctor for an autism diagnosis, then maybe the, the food stuff is picked up on. Do you think mm-hmm. there's a chance that, you know, more more people with autism are coming forward because they're already going for an autism diagnosis and then you know individuals that possibly might not have autism but have ARFID aren't necessarily being picked up on because it's just seen as picky eating. So do you mean as in they would sort of go to the doctor because the parent perhaps suspects that they're autistic and then the food yeah the food would be picked up on yeah Yeah, whereas the other person might not go and people might say they're just being picky. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that's a big one because, you know, parents are pay a lot of attention to their child's development quite naturally. And I think that if there are sort of flags that perhaps they are developing differently or um, that they could be autistic and then they have the food thing sort of thrown in there. So they go to the doctor to get a diagnosis of ARFID or they go to some kind of professional and they um seek a diagnosis of of sorry of autism um and then they mention actually my child also is really fussy and hardly accepts any food so it could be that they're being picked up on more um as a result um maybe more so than non-autistic people who have mm. problems with food or eating and um, but yeah as you say it's it's one of those things that's that needs to be explored it's a really interesting thing that needs exploring mm. um who knows who knows if there is an actual link there or if it's just because they're sort of presenting more to professionals 
I have a question and I feel like this might be slightly controversial, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I think that makes for an interesting conversation. Um, yeah. I guess, so let's say that um, in in this idea that I'm suggesting that there is a link between ARFID and autism and say, you know, when you were saying about um individuals liking things to be the same so kind of like sitting with the same nice forks or same place in a restaurant or the same packaging or whatever I guess and I mean I'm asking this from a perspective of I don't know a lot about autism and I mean I don't think that you'd ever use the term you know we're going to treat autism um mm-hmm. I guess it would be like you know managing or I guess the symptoms of it so you know kind of improving people's lives and implementing things that helps them manage their autism so that they can um, kind of function in day-to-day life so if if let's say you know the the comfort of going to the same restaurant sitting in the same seat and stuff is no I mean it doesn't even have to be kind of like a link to autism but do you think then those behaviors should be I guess quote-unquote treated I'm not sure if you kind of get what I'm trying to ask but because there is like the similarity should we be Mm. treating those behaviors or should it just be kind of you know trying to improve their diet and treating the nutritional deficiencies if that makes sense yeah I I get I completely get what you're saying oh I think I do (laughs) um you know that (laughs) if if I go off at a tangent just stop me but um I've just gone off on one so you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) um but no I see I see what you're saying that you know we don't treat we don't treat autism it's not something to be treated it's just a neurological difference um mm. if anything us kind of non-autistic people should be adapting just as much as we expect autistic people to be adapting to the world so absolutely not in my view it's not something to be treated and if somebody then experiences problems with food or eating as a result of their autistic um behaviors so as you say this kind of preference for sameness or routine um should we really be treating that because are we then treating autism as a result um and it's a really good point i think the only reason that we treat arfid or the arfid symptoms in an autistic person is if it was really affecting them so if they like going to a particular restaurant and sitting in a particular spot um and eating the same thing off of the menu and it doesn't affect them in any way then absolutely that's not something to be treated um you know i think that's a really important point but if their limited intake it means that they are losing lots of weight or they've got these severe nutritional deficiencies or it means that Um, for example they aren't able to integrate at school at all so it's not that they're autistic and we need to maybe make a few adjustments so that they do integrate but that they they can't even be in the school dinner hall or something like that then we can start to make adjustments or you know quote unquote treat them so that they maybe can be in the school dinner hall even if they don't sit and eat there but that they can sit with their friends so they're not missing out so I think the key is that if it's affecting them in a way if it's affecting the way they live their life or it's having some kind of physical impact on their life um then it's maybe something that they need to think about um addressing but if it's not then it absolutely in my opinion it absolutely shouldn't I think that there's no reason why somebody could just prefer a particular plate or a particular brand. Mm. But if that brand of fish fingers is the only thing that they eat um, and they've got all sorts of health issues as a result, then then that's the ARFID we're treating, not the autism. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it, it really does make sense. And I think I, I think I agree with you. And I guess my, my brain is like, my brain's having a great time at the moment. I'm thinking of all different <laughs> things. Like... I guess this is another difference of maybe, um, you know, maybe looking at anorexia because I think if if we were to say with anorexia, oh, I only like to eat with a certain plate or I only like to eat a certain brand or um, kind of, you know, things that make eating more comfortable, 
I think if you were in treatment for anorexia, then it would be, no, you need to, you know, you need to have a different plate because you feel comfortable with that or you need to sit somewhere different or have a different brand. So it's Mm. it's actually really interesting thinking, I guess, across, you know, if you look from anorexia to ARFID to autism, I think Mm -hmm. there's links between all of them, but actually the, the treatment approaches are, you know, have to be quite different in order to actually help people. Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, even perhaps I don't know a lot about anorexia treatment, but I think if somebody could quite feasibly have a diagnosis of of, um, ASD and anorexia, Mm. and if they're being forced to change up where they sit or the cutlery that they use or the plates that they use or whatever, and that's having an effect on them as an autistic person, then it's should be adapted that shouldn't be the kind of treatment they're receiving um so I suppose it's sort of as you say looking at this whole spectrum of ASD, ARFID and anorexia and the overlap I suppose between the diagnoses and trying to get the right course of treatment for that person so not a kind of one-size-fits-all nope when you're treated for anorexia our thing is that we we try to steer you steer you away from only eating from a certain plate and that might be beneficial to some people with anorexia absolutely um, but if that person's autistic and the reason they're doing it is because they're autistic and that's just the way that their brain prefers it to be then that's probably not going to be helpful um, and maybe that's you know something that we shouldn't be encouraging so yeah it's completely looking at the bigger picture and um, you know treating people in, on an individual basis yeah it's interesting actually because I mean this I think was like March times ages ago but I did do a podcast um with a girl called Charlie who is doing her PhD looking at and the link between anorexia and autism and she was saying kind of the same thing in that you know a lot of a lot of behaviors that are observed in autism Mm. can be observed in anorexia and they can be the eating disorder in sort of a negative way or it can be the autism and she was looking at kind of you know the link between them but then also how treatment needed to be different for people that did have autism because their presentation with anorexia was often really really different um so I think like you say it has to be on an individual level um Mm -hmm. and you know I think we are kind of limited with resources at the moment but hopefully kind of the more research that goes out there and the more we talk about how different eating disorders appear and then how they need to be treated I think you know it I've always said it's my dream for the individual to be treated and not the diagnosis so hopefully we're we're getting closer to that yeah that's that's such a good such a good point you know we we sort of go at things on um diagnostic level don't we a kind of behavioral level but uh, there are so many things that come into play when somebody's diagnosed with an eating disorder and, uh, you know, just throwing treatment at them, throwing the same treatment at them isn't, isn't not always beneficial. It's hardly ever beneficial. So I think that, yeah, absolutely. We need to start looking at people individually. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess kind of, I, mean, I don't know whether we've already kind of touched on this a little bit, and I guess if there's not a specific treatment for ARFID, but kind of one thing I did want to ask is how do you think the, I guess, the the main differences between, you know, treating anorexia to ARFID, what do you think kind of the main things, I guess maybe the main outcomes of treatment, how do you think they differ? Yeah, I mean, I suppose ARFID, um isn't a lifelong disorder in the same way that anorexia isn't so you're given a diagnosis of ARFID or anorexia and hopefully with the right treatment and the right support you can you can get rid of that diagnosis so it's not like asthma or type 1 diabetes Mm. where you kind of you know that unfortunately that's a lifelong diagnosis um so we hope that treatment for ARFID means that somebody recovers um but with ARFID and and again I'm not too familiar with anorexia treatment I think you can fully recover from anorexia um with ARFID I think there are different kind of levels of recovery I guess it's Mm. central to this is what does recovery looks look like so and again I suppose we come back to this heterogeneity so the kind of different drivers so for someone who experienced say 
an acute choking episode. Um, and then they're kind of supported through their fear of eating as a result of that. They might then go on to live their life and to eat as they would have before the incident. So recovery for someone like that could be uh, complete, so to speak. It could be entirely resolved. Um, but for others, so say for those with sensory sensitivities that result in a complete refusal of particular foods, um, recovery probably won't look the same. So instead, um, it might be the case that for this subgroup of people, they're helped to eat a kind of good enough diet. So they take in all of the essential food groups, the nutrients, they maintain a steady weight, um, and they're able to sort of consume food, which allows them to live their life, um, maybe by eating with colleagues or friends at school or something like that. So they sort of tackle all of those things that we see in the diagnostic criteria, um, but they don't necessarily they're not necessarily cured. So, you know, so to speak, they can't just eat all foods. I mean, who does really, but they can't just eat all foods. Um, but they introduce enough foods. So they live a relatively sort of regular life, I guess, without their eating habits, having too much of a negative impact. Um, so yeah, I suppose there are different, um, different views of recovery with RFID. But ultimately, it's not something that someone has for the rest of their life mm -hmm. so it's just about either you know if it can be completely sorted because of say a choking incident or a vomiting incident great but generally it's about this kind of good enough diet mm -hmm. so um you know or, or good enough um so that they can integrate into their social circles again and and they can recover in terms of their nutritional deficiencies yeah i guess mostly it's I guess reducing the impact that it has on day-to-day -day life isn't it and you know like you said making mm -hmm. their relationship potentially as quote-unquote normal as possible mm -hmm. but like you said what even is a normal relationship with food and, yeah yeah um I guess yeah it's just getting to somebody to a point where it doesn't kind of interfere with their life every day um mm -hmm. We've got some questions from the listeners for you. And one of the kind of biggest questions, I think I think I got it three times, was can we separate ARFID from autism? And I mean, I think we've already touched on that a little bit, but I guess in, in that specific sense, is there anything else that you wanted to add to that bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're completely different in my view, I think. Like, as we say, not all autistic people have ARFID and not all people with ARFID are autistic. So I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, they are very different. We sort of see why um, the two tend to come together. So, uh, you know, they can come together, um, but they're very different. And lots of people with ARFID are not autistic and present with ARFID for various reasons. Um, so it's important, I think, really, really important that, we don't see ARFID as um, an autistic dis eating disorder mm -hmm. because it isn't. Um, we just tend to see that they can come as a pair because of certain autistic behaviours or, um, you know, thinking styles. Um, but yeah, I, I think they're, they're really different. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I asked you that question so you could <laughs> kind of say that definitely. Um, yeah. Another question, what are your tips for parents and carers whilst they're supporting a loved one um, who's in treatment for ARFID? Um, well, I suppose, yeah, most importantly is, is getting that support. Um, and that's, I think, quite a hurdle. Um, as far as I understand, it can be quite difficult getting access to support services that specifically treat ARFID. Um, and I don't know what the situation is with the NHS now currently, but I know that it wasn't funded previously, um, which is just awful. Um, so I suppose it's just a case of, of getting some professional support where you can um, and supporting your child or, you know, the person that you care for um, in any way that you can. So um not placing too much emphasis, I guess, on mealtimes, no kind of coercion at mealtimes and just trying to accommodate to their needs. And, um, you know, I'm not an expert in treating ARFID, so I'm not going to say 
for sure what you should or shouldn't do um but I suppose just from a kind of general point of view it's just showing that you're there to support them and um that quite often what you see with ARFID and I think it's the same with, with most eating disorders that there needs to be um that kind of intrinsic motivation I guess to recover and once somebody has that there's sort of no stopping them. Um, and I've seen that with ARFID where children will present to a support service and um, not be particularly interested in recovery because they don't think it really affects mm. them. And then when they sort of hit secondary school, maybe, or, you know, they get a little bit older and their friends start going to um, the dinner hall to have chips together. And suddenly this child is interested in in eating chips as well so they can sit with their friends so I think that that once they've got that intrinsic motivation it's just up to parents and carers to support them in their recovery um yeah I think that's about all I can say because I don't I don't want to say too much um <laughs> in terms of you know treating yeah, it no. because I don't know I, I I'm not a clinician I'm not able to treat Arford mm-hmm. I suppose um and, you know, if you don't have the answer to this, it's completely fine. It's just a kind of thought of mine. But I guess that must be quite a challenge. If you have a child that is, you know, let's, let's say five, six years old and doesn't have that intrinsic motivation, mm-hmm. but you're fully aware that their kind of relationship with food, you know, either they're not eating the right types of food or they've got a fear or whatever, I suppose that must be quite challenging if if you can recognise as a parent there's a problem, but your child doesn't recognise there's a problem because it's having no impact on them. Mm. Then it's kind of, you know, where do you go from there? Because if the child isn't up for trying loads of different foods at mealtimes, I guess, you know, I'm thinking because I haven't really worked with patients with ARFID, I'm thinking of like eating sort of anorexia. And, you know, if if you sat down at a meal, it's kind of, you finish the meal um, yeah. because that's how you're going to get better. You know, you might need to gain weight or whatever mm-hmm. and increasing that kind of ability to be okay with eating food. But then I guess if it's ARFID and, you know, you're sat at the table with a five, six year old and you've fed them something that they don't normally eat, it's, I guess it's how much you push because it really needs to be their choice rather than, you know, if you're then pushing them, that could then make it, you know, worse for them because they've got more things to worry about when it comes to that certain food definitely and and you know I, I say about intrinsic motivation but there I'm sure there are lots of cases where children aren't intrinsically motivated to recover um and that it just adds an extra mm. level of challenge I guess for sure. parents um yeah it's it's something that I think when you do seek treatment or you know when you manage to get access to treatment um things like um and I can't think what the term is but kind of parent parent education or something you know um helping parents to understand the best way of doing that sort of thing so the best way of tackling it if their child sat at the dining table and they refuse to eat how you best approach that um and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to say how you would, but I know that that is, is um, a certain, certain method of, of treatment that you can sort of, this parent-led um, training, I suppose, mm. to help parents and carers to understand what it is they should be doing when their child sat there refusing to eat and with absolutely no desire to recover in any way from ARFID. Um, because once they've got the intrinsic motivation, you're just there to support them. But if they haven't got that, then it becomes something slightly more difficult, I guess. So, yeah, I think treatment is geared towards helping people to support um, themselves and also the person who has ARFID because it's hard on everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of a broad statement for all eating disorders in that Mm. I think, you know, if you are supporting somebody with an eating disorder, then that should definitely be considered when it comes to the treatment process of how you're going to provide support for them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last question, and I, I didn't say this one earlier because I wanted to ask it because it was asked as a, a listener question, is can you grow out of ARFID without treatment? Um, I suppose that's a good question. I guess, and this is just me thinking about it, 
I suppose you could. Um, I think that what we were talking about just now with this intrinsic motivation, what I've heard about is children that are, are really, really fussy for years and years. And for example, they go up to secondary school and they've got the kind of peer pressure from friends. Um, and suddenly they're motivated to start increasing the foods that they accept. I suppose there are cases or there have been cases of children that would would confer diagnosis for ARFID perhaps previously and then sort of find this motivation to recover themselves. I'm not sure, I, I wouldn't like to say for sure, but thinking logically, I suppose you, you probably could, um, but ultimately, because it's an eating disorder, I don't think that it's the sort of thing you could sort of for certain say, well, they'll just grow out of it. It's not that sort of thing. I think for the majority, um, some kind of intervention is needed, but I guess it's not a complete no that somebody could um, help themselves, I guess, and just fall short, I suppose, of that diagnosis. So they're still eating a really limited diet, but perhaps they start to introduce different foods because they get interested in um, sports, for example, and they need more energy. So they um, start to increase the food, the, you know, the carbs that they eat in their diet, for example, or, um, you know, as I said before, going out with friends and going out for meals or going on dates or something like that, and suddenly feeling like they want to have a bit more of a variety in their diet. Um, and then they just fall short of that diagnosis. But yeah, I don't see why not. Um, I think ultimately, if somebody has ARFID at a young age, um, it's not something that you easily, you certainly don't easily sort of grow out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think basically what I'm taking away from this podcast is that it, it's just completely individual and there's yeah. not really one answer for, for anything, which um, I, does make it a bit more difficult, but I think makes it a lot more interesting as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, the point that you touched on earlier, I think we should be moving towards treating people with all eating disorders individually so although a lot of the answers to the podcast have been quite ambiguous you know well it could be this or it could be that I think actually that's um quite a positive step in a way that we're not trying to pigeonhole people with ARFID we're not saying okay if you've got ARFID this is the treatment and you will recover that we're actually saying okay let's look at everything and let's consider everything and hopefully we can start to treat people more of an individual level and hopefully that will then extend to other eating disorders, which I, I know that treatments do, but um, I think broadly speaking, we should be looking at eating disorders in that way or, and indeed any other sort of, um, you know, disorders. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been absolutely a pleasure to speak to you, Laura. Thank you so much. Um, I feel like I've learned so much. I'm hoping that everybody listening has, I think, you know, developed a really good understanding of Arfid. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to come and talk about something that I love talking about. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to Laura today because I think despite Arfid not being commonly known there are so many misconceptions and I think it's so important especially when we start talking about something that might be new to make sure that we lay out the facts rather than people getting the wrong idea. Next week I'll be joined by Abby Reynolds. Abby works for Wednesday's Child as the perinatal lead and her aim is to support women going through their pregnancy and so that the right questions are asked when a woman comes in to ensure that an eating disorder relapse or an eating disorder for the first time ever doesn't occur during someone's pregnancy. I was so torn because I desperately desperately wanted to keep my baby safe and well mm. and yet I felt utterly tortured any time I nourished myself or tried to rest and I think you know, I just felt such a deep shame and fear that even my love for my baby couldn't overcome the compulsions to over-exercise and nourish myself. And I, you know, I felt like the worst mother in the world, I really did. I just felt wholly undeserving of this little creature growing inside me and so disconnected from my body and its needs. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it. 
please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment. Not only those struggling with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. See you next time. Bye!